These are the Grapevine Sessions and this is Take Two. Tonight on the podcast, I'm joined yet again by my... What can I call you? You can call me anything you like. <laughs> by my hopefully perennial host, co-host, Nicholas Tufnell, writer, journalist, impending novelist. I'm not sure impending is the correct use impending, of the term. Impending, it sort of suggests doom. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Doom-laden novelist. Nicholas, tonight on the pod we're going to be talking Englishness, national identity, a bit of individual identity, what on earth that means, get on to belonging perhaps. We've got Margaret Cavendish, potentially just thrown into the mix, who really defies categorization and in fact understanding, you could argue. But Nicholas is as ever here to convince us all with passion why we should be reading her. Nicholas, welcome. Thank you very much, I certainly shall. Defend her. We may even get into some Dickens. We may get into uh, some Mary Shelley. So tonight we're going to start off with Kazoo Ishiguru reigning, I believe, Nobel Prize winner. They didn't award prizes here. No, there's been scandal after scandal. Embroiled. Uh, embroiled is the term. Yeah, <laughs> they're say. all embroiled. <laughs> they're just going to give two next year. Yeah, it's all a bit strange. But then maybe this is something that needs to be magnified. Kazu Ishiguru is enjoying his unique double year reign. As Nobel Prize winner, yeah. as a consequence. Who was not embroiled in any way. He's embroiled in nothing but success. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, in a rare moment, I picked up a new book the other day, Remains of the Day, Jeff Bezos' favourite book, Richest Man in the World. Really? <laughs> now that is what you call shock. <laughs> <laughs> is that true? That's insane. <laughs> that is ridiculous. That is utterly ridiculous. Jeff Bezos' favourite book is The Remains of the Day by Kazi Ishiguru. There's just so many reasons why that doesn't add up and why that's also kind of wrong and weird. And okay, okay, fair enough. I mean, he's allowed to. I'm deeply surprised. Have you have you heard the man talking in an interview? <laughs> well, for reasons as yet unrevealed, this is an odd choice. But perhaps we'll get into some of those with this first grape tonight. First, Nicholas, you'd like to give us a brief overview. Yeah, well, this novel, when you're talking about Kazuo Ishiguro, you can't ignore the remains of the day. So currently Harry is reading this, so I don't want to give too much away. And it's about a butler called Mr. Stevens, sort of a very emotionally restrained man. And we come to understand his life as a butler just shortly after the First World War, and then ramifications after the Second World War, what it means to be a butler. The idea of being a manservant changes quite a bit. And that's part of one of the tragedies of the book, is that almost imperceptible shift in the sense of dignity. Does, does this speak then to the whole idea of the imperceptible change we all go through in our lives, that we only one day wake up to realise, can we say the butler stands for almost anyone? So yeah, I think the reasons for the success of this novel is the idea that we are all, in a sense, butlers. We live lives in which most of us have to have a, a job, and it's quite a little job, and it actually doesn't amount to all that much on its own. Most of us will be doing something that then we present to someone else, uh, and then where it goes from there is out of our hands. We try our very best to live a, a dignified life. You know, on the surface, it looks like we're doing a good job of things, but really all we're doing is, is polishing shoes for the big man who's going to go off and do something that we have no access to. Right. Even if you take the biggest poker tables, if you like, in the UK, yeah. almost anyone playing at the biggest tables in film and television and journalism 
is really just playing at the side tables of the American tables. Yes, yes. You know, how, however good the work you produce is, it's only good enough for this pond and then it's being used as a chip in a bigger pond. Yeah, it's that lapdog idea of our position on the global stage, definitely. And so much of this book is about the notion of, of, of having wasted one's life and perhaps not really knowing until it's probably a little too late. Well, this is why Jeff Bezos is such a fan of the book. <laughs> oh, my God. I cannot believe this. I cannot believe that... You, t- you temporarily forgot that this was the case, didn't you? <laughs> It just makes me laugh every time because it's ridiculous. Because he is exactly... Oh, this makes me so angry. He's exactly the kind of man, the kind of awful, awful human being that probably hundreds of thousands of people work for. And they, they have these... They have the little lives. They have Whether, it, whether it's someone on the, the Amazon uh, distribution service where they're actually wearing nappies or some Twitch streamer kid who's already getting caught up in the machine but doesn't even notice doesn't even realize it these are all the people these are the butlers of the world these are the people that are living these little lives um these small lives and i don't mean that in a patronizing way because i'm one of those people as well you're one of those people we're all one of the we're we're all like that apart from the bloody jeff bezos's of this world and it's 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 just so offensive to me that he of all people has picked out this book he has completely misunderstood it let's hope that jeff bezos doesn't find this podcast no, when he puts it off for Grey Man down the line, you know? Yeah, sorry about that. I mean, I love the guy. I think it's totally moral and normal for someone to have that much money. It's great. Let's, let's bring in our first grape. This is Ishiguro on the unique dignity of Englishmen. If one looks at these persons, whom we all agree are great butlers, if one looks at, say, Mr. Marshall or Mr. Lane, it does seem to be that the factor which distinguishes them most from other butlers, who are merely extremely competent, is most closely captured by this word, dignity. Of course, this merely begs the further question of what is dignity comprised? Let me now posit this. Dignity has to do crucially with a butler's ability not to abandon the professional being he inhabits. Lesser butlers will abandon their professional being for the private one at the least provocation. For such persons, being a butler is like playing some pantomime role, a small push, a slight stumble, and the facade will drop off to reveal the actor underneath. The great butlers are great by virtue of their ability to inhabit their professional role and inhabit it to the utmost. They will not be shaken out by external events, however surprising, alarming or vexing. They wear their professionalism as a decent gentleman will wear his suit. He will not let ruffians or circumstances tear it off him in the public gaze. He will discard it when and only when he wills to do so. And this will invariably be when he is entirely alone. It is, as I say, a matter of dignity. It is sometimes said that butlers only truly exist in England. Other countries, whatever title is actually used, have only manservants. I tend to believe this is true. Continentals are unable to be butlers because they are, as a breed, incapable of the emotional restraint which only the English race is capable of. Continentals, and by and large the Celts, as you will no doubt agree, are as a rule unable to control themselves in moments of strong emotion and are thus unable to maintain a professional demeanour other than the least challenging of situations where are you left after hearing that again we go back to that that idea of dignity and that being a fundamentally english quality but then what is dignity in this book it wavers it comes and goes in various ways well it's it's, it's initially defined from what i can tell by his father yeah there are a couple of stories used to demonstrate what dignity meant in his father's generation 
Yeah. And the silent ways in which it was conveyed and the... Yeah. Relationship with his father in the book is very interesting as well because he's, he admires him and he's afraid of him. But at the very moment he's meant to be there for him, he fails him because of this notion of dignity that his father's instilled in him. There's something of the puppet, of the clown about it. There's nothing funnier than someone thinking they're terribly dignified <laughs> and it all being, you know, and someone throwing a pie on their face. You know, it's hilarious. And, and, but still, even with the pie on the face, they're still acting frightfully dignified and uh, the whole thing is ridiculous. You know, and someone, John Cleese did that very well. You know, that's Basil Fawlty, who has this idea of being very, very special, but actually he's the silliest man in the room, you know. Um, and so a little bit of that creeps through in this book as well. And his father, as, as you age within that system of doing things, as that gets older and clunkier, it seems to become more irrelevant and more of a waste, a terrible, a terrible waste. On exactly that point, he concludes, if I may return to my earlier metaphor, you will excuse my putting it so coarsely, they, this is Continentals, Continental butlers, that is, like a man who will, at the slightest provocation, tear off his suit and his shirt and run about screaming. In a word, dignity is beyond such persons. We English have an important advantage over foreigners in this respect, and it is for this reason that when you think of a great butler, he is bound, almost by definition, to be an Englishman. And you have there the slightly tragic strain behind those words, where this man is so convinced of a system of, of ideas that will later, as you hint at, yeah, there will be a large part of his downfall. This idea of being too late, again, what Kazuo Ishiguro does a lot with his writing, pro probably everything he's written is about memory. Failures of memory, remorse. Um, his most recent book, The Buried Giant, was all about sort of like fog, and the fog is full of like lost memories. Or We're gonna get there, but I wanna first bring up and, and pursue a bit more this idea of Englishness, just with a couple yeah. of quotes, one from Javier Marias, from the book All Souls. Have you come across this? Have you come no, across him? Not a very English name, though. Well, indeed. He, I believe, is Spanish, but he studied at Oxford, at All Souls. Wow, All Souls. That's a tough one to get into. For many years, famous for the one-word essay question they yeah. asked of you. Yeah, yeah. You know, status, full stop, and then you had to write the essay. Absurd. Absurd. I mean, actually brilliant now that <laughs> I think if you had grapevine, that would just, it just is so easy. You know, so often a grapevine is a one-worder. Pull up the grapevine and then write your essays. On a dime. <laughs> yeah. Have they stopped that exam? They have stopped that exam. Ah. In fact, it's something else a bit sad. But I, I would really like to know what word the people I know who got into old souls, you know, answered. When I say people I know, people I know of, the Isaiah Berlins of this world, who I did not have the fortune to know. <laughs> but I occasionally meet those people, you ever have this, who have met people that you admire or know of. And then you kind of pepper them with questions and they can only ever say a couple of blasé, bland lines. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you need a novelist, you need someone deeply thoughtful to have been the connector. What did you have it with? You had it with someone you said. I did actually have it with uh, Christiane Kubrick. When did you meet her? I didn't. Someone I knew met her, but completely accidentally. She didn't know who the hell she was. It's one of those situations. But then Christiane Kubrick's an interesting one because I wonder how much... I wonder how much she knows. I mean, I, th I think in many ways she'll know a lot, but in many ways, yeah, how, how I mean, involved was be... she in the process of his making his films? Yeah, yeah. Well, Seinfeld said uh, in front of his wife, it's not the real him. <laughs> it's the most 
cruel thing you can say on camera. But he said when, when he's with his wife, that's not the real him. And uh, perhaps Kubrick was like that. Well, that's a tragedy, isn't it? Yeah, it's very sad. It's sad he'd, uh, he... But it, is, but it is an interesting idea about artists in general or, or just people. I mean, you know, when are we most our real selves? And if our real selves is at work, yeah. Then how does the person we're with ever know of ourselves? It's a very deep question. I don't know. I don't know if I can... Well, that's going to be a whole podcast one day. <laughs> I, I don't know if I can answer. But again, we're getting back to this notion of identity, right? Right. So who are we and when are we who we truly are? That sparks me to, to bring first... Well, a grapelet. It didn't ever make grapevine, mm. being less than 100 words. But this is John Fowles uh, in The Magus on the English. I guessed that he partly wanted to taunt us with a false contrast between an all-wise Europe and a callow England. In spite of all his gnomic cant, he was like so many other Europeans, quite unable to understand the emotional depths and subtleties of the English attitude to life. He thought the girls and I were green, innocence, but we could out-perfidy his perfidy, and precisely because we were English, born with masks and bred to lie. Born with masks and bread to lie. I love it. It's delicious. Let me bring this one in and then we'll discuss the both. This is Javier Marias on the glazed eyes of an English gaze from All Souls. As is well known, the English never look openly at anything, or they look in such a veiled, indifferent way that one can never be sure that someone is actually looking at what they appear to be looking at, such as their ability to lend an opaque glaze to the most ordinary of glances. That's why the way continentals look at people, the way I do, for example, can cause great unease in the object of their gaze. And that applies even when the gaze in question would be classified within the range of possible Spanish or continental gazes as indifferent, dispassionate, even respectful. That's why, too, it can be shocking when the veil usually covering the insular or English gaze is torn away and why it might even provoke a dispute or an argument were it not for the fact that the eyes of those likely to see that gaze stripped of its veil still wear theirs, and therefore fail to see what to unclouded eyes, the continental eyes for example, would be obvious and possibly even insulting. This very similar idea in two books 40 years apart from an Englishman and a continental, that there's something in the way that the English have been bred, if you like, that they always exist behind masks. You know, Shiguru perhaps shows us why that mask very rarely slips because of an idea of dignity. This reminds me of uh, E.M. Forster in Howard's End. He describes a character. He says he gave up the glory of the animal for a tailcoat and a set of ideas. Again, this sort of idea of beneath the surface. <laughs> we had the, the spark, the fire, but what makes us English is this idea of putting out that fire a little bit. This notion of composure, of uh, repression. It, we are repressed. There is something repressed. To give you a, to an, another example, not that I want to throw too many grapes at us here, but this is Harold Nicholson on the repressive rights of an English public school, and he just talks here about how our Wellington once ceased so completely to be individual, to have anything but a corporate identity, that the question scarcely arose whether one might or might not be odd. One just was a name, or rather a number, on the list. I mean, what you have in these four grapes is you have accounts of English behaviour that is both negative, when we talk about repression or glazed eyes or masks and being born to lie, and then you have a very similar account of behaviour but labelled positively. Yeah, I think, I think it stems from our culture, our society, our schooling. Um, 
But uh, but there, there's an irony there. Right? We just paused for the the brain mob <laughs> in the street, and no, but in fact that is exactly the point we're talking about here. That, that now to be English is no longer to be the things we are describing. To be English is to be the brain mob. Yeah, that's one kind of Englishness, certainly. Now um, the dominant one. Now the dominant one. No, I feel like maybe that's unfair on the brain mob. You know, um, well I it wasn't the kind of phrase <laughs> <laughs> oh no not the phrase i'm all for calling them the brain <laughs> what i think is unfair is that i think that is actually a perfect example of how things are the same it's what time is it it's midnight and people are screaming on the streets it's midnight and people are screaming on the streets this repression only comes out when the sun goes down, when everything has gone away and they've had a few drinks, there's a reason we have this binge culture, uh, which I've been a part of. You know, I'm not saying that I'm better than this. My girlfriend calls me Two Glass Joe. <laughs> I think you're in the same ballpark. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. My binging is a couple of the Freud's. None of that really matters. What matters is that it, it's still mainly men trying to break free of this repression. Calls of people wishing for mates and anything else. Yeah, it's a, it's a mating call. And, and if only this could be gently released throughout the day rather than built up because we hate our jobs and we hate what we do and we feel like we're working towards something that's pointless, working towards, even though we won't admit it to ourselves, we're working towards a wasted life. We would never say it, but we kind of, in the back of our minds, think it and, and sort of know it as we go to sleep at night. And so to hell with that, I'm going to have another drink and I'm going to start screaming in the street because actually I'm not very happy with my life and maybe someone will love me if I scream loud enough and a woman shows interest and I bed her and then I bed another and I bed another trying to find happiness, more and more happiness and it's not there, it's just not there and it's a very sad cycle that we can end up in and calling that fun, calling that our weekend and it's not, we're looking for something a lot more than that, we're trying to find meaning in, in what I'm describing as a lost people, a lost generation. You're referring, I suppose, to the England World Cup team of 2006. <laughs> of course. Which Currently I being redeemed in Russia. Right, right. I know Unexpectedly. Yes, yes. Are you aware that the World Cup is going on? Uh, I'm aware it's going on, but I'm not aware of... Are you aware that England are in the World Cup semi-final for the first time since 1990? No, that's very good. Well done. It's amazing. Since what he, when? What he manages to not know is incredible. <laughs> Lost generation, please. Yeah, so this idea of, of, of being lost, it comes up in an, another great novel of his called Never Let Me Go, and actually have a great, which I'm going to read. It's like Blue Peter, isn't it? Oh, here's one I made earlier. <laughs> yeah, with a fairy liquid bottle. <laughs> the point is... Sorry, because was, what was... Every good grape means a title, to anchor sorry. the reader. The title of this grape is England's Lost Corner. The point is, there was a gap in Miss Emily's calendar collection... None of them had a single picture of Norfolk. We had these same lectures repeated a number of times, and I'd always wondered if this time she'd found a picture of Norfolk. But it was always the same. She'd wave her pointer over the map and say, as a sort of afterthought, and over here we've got Norfolk. Very nice there. Then, that particular time, I remember how she paused and drifted off into thought, maybe because she hadn't planned what should happen next instead of a picture. Eventually, she came out of her dream and tapped the map again. You see, because it's stuck out here on the east, on this hump jutting, jutting into the sea, it's not on the way to anywhere. People going north and south, she moved the pointer up and down, they bypass it altogether. 
For that reason, it's a peaceful corner of England, rather nice. But it's also something of a lost corner. A lost corner. That's what she called it. And that was what started it. Because at Hailsham, we had our own lost corner up on the third floor where the lost property was kept. If you lost or found anything, that's where you went. Someone, I can't remember who it was, claimed after the lesson that what Miss Emily had said was that Norfolk was England's lost corner, where all the lost property found in the country ended up. I feel like a lost corner, you know? <laughs> I, I, and actually, it's not a, an original idea. It's written very well, but it's not an original idea. Charles Hoy Fort. There are no original ideas. There are no, no, there are no original. There is only sure original expression. Yeah, that's true. And this is an original expression. And Charles Hoy Fort had another expression that was very similar. He said there's such a thing as the Super Sargasso Sea, where all lost things go. I mean, really believe that it was real. He just used it as... He didn't realise it was a Norfolk. <laughs> no, he didn't. The fool. It's, it's just quite an astute observation, but also a wonderful metaphor um, uh, for how I think a lot of people in England feel. And also probably, probably why we've got Brexit. Probably feel like we are the butler of, of Europe, in a sense. Or even just the butler of London, and Brexit's one yeah, way of... Yeah, the butler of London. ...redressing that. There's so many paths, as always, so we, we, we need to decide where we want to head. I feel like I'm heading up, down a path... Hit me. ...deeper within history. As we're talking about identity... We're going to the Bible. We're going to... Not so deep, not so deep. <laughs> There's a great writer who I think struggled with identity a lot, and that's Mary Shelley. So what I'd like to do is maybe start off by reading out a grape. This is from Frankenstein, 1818, and the title of this grape is uh, The Death of the Monster. Fear not that I shall be the instrument of future mischief. My work is nearly complete. Neither yours nor any man's death is needed to consummate the series of my being and accomplish that which must be done, but it requires my own. Do not think that I shall be slow to perform this sacrifice. I shall quit your vessel on the ice raft which brought me thither and shall seek the most northern extremity of the globe. I shall collect my funeral pile and consume to ashes this miserable frame, that it remains may afford no light to any curious and unhallowed wretch who would create such another as I have been. I shall die. I shall no longer feel the agonies which now consume me or be the prey of feelings unsatisfied, yet unquenched. He is dead who called me into being. And when I shall be no more, the very remembrance of us both will be speedily vanished. Just before you continue, Henrik, just give me a tiny bit of context on, on who I'm listening to. The note field on, on Grapevine also allows you to just give a bit of context if a reader you feel might need it. A reader may need it here. So this is the creature. The modern depictions of Frankenstein are so awful in that they're just... They're a man with a bolt and they go, oh, oh, friend, oh. But he's very intelligent. He's almost too intelligent. He's too aware of himself. How many people do you think think Frankenstein is the monster? Quite a lot, I'd imagine. But no, Dr. Frankenstein is the man that created Frankenstein's monster, the creature. I think the most interesting question you can ask about the creature is, is he a monster because we don't? sympathize with him or do we not sympathize with him because he's a monster he murders it's cold-blooded murder but 
he also picks out all of the potatoes from the cold, dark earth for this poor family that don't have the strength to take it out themselves. And he essentially feeds them for a, a year, I think, before he even reveals himself, whoever that may be. And then they, are, then they beat him out of the house and they tell him to get away. So he's desperately looking for a place in the world. And this is why I think it does relate to Kazuki Ishiguri. And Mary Shelley, my God, she had no identity. Her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, so her mother dies shortly after giving birth. That means her father, William Godwin, also another giant, spent the rest of his life sort of mourning the death of this great, great woman. So was Shelley mother. the monster? And Wollstonecraft, Frankenstein? No, Frankenstein is William Godwin. Um, her father? Yeah, the father. He created her from bits. You know, he gave her his mother's name. She doesn't even have a name. And, and the creature doesn't have a name. It's no coincidence. So the, the whole story is about identity, and this is finally the, the death of the creature, and he's sort of explaining himself. And I'll go on and complete the rest of this grape now. Farewell. I leave you. And in you, the last of humankind, whom these eyes will ever behold. Farewell, Frankenstein. If thou wert yet alive and yet cherished desire of revenge against me, it would be better satiated in my life than in my destruction. But soon, he cried with sad and solemn enthusiasm, I shall die. And what I now feel be no longer felt. Soon these burning miseries will extinct. I shall ascend my funeral pile triumphantly and exult in the agony of the torturing flames. The light of that conflagration will fade away. My ashes will be swept into the sea by the winds. My spirit will sleep in peace, or if it thinks, it will not surely think thus. Farewell. He sprang from the cabin window, as he said this, upon the ice raft which lay close to the vessel. He was soon borne away by the waves and lost darkness and distance. Now I want to talk to you about the idea of endings here because as you put it last week no one's life ends in a full stop. Here his life actually does end in a full stop. Shelley does give him this TV episode style send-off yes, yeah. rather than ending him mid-sentence as a Kafka or a Joyce. There's something grand here isn't there? There is a great... Because yeah. I remember there's a... I used to be a great TV watcher of American television in my youth as with many. 24 was a show I watched often, used to sneak down and watch it at age nine. And in season four of 24, Jack Bauer, did he ever come across the show? I've, I don't know the show. Uh, well, Jack Bauer, played by erstwhile bad boy Kiefer Sullivan, is a counter-terrorist agent. Crikey. For many years, so with a very different definition of dignity than Mr. Stevens is. Have you ever seen Die Hard? I've seen Die Hard. He, he's like Bruce Willis's character in Die Hard. But a sort of every man. An every man with the floor. And in season four, he has to fake his own death. He has to commit the ultimate death of the subject we've been talking about, his own identity. And there's the most beautiful scene where he calls the president, first black president on television, who some say, you know, helped shape the way for Obama, the president whose life he saved in season one. He calls the president, and they have this final moment where the president says, it's been an honor, Jack. And Jack says, Mr. President, the honor's all mine. And walks off into the sunset. At 6 a.m., puts on his shades, the music comes in. For like here, Frankenstein, oh sorry, the monster, has been given an ending yeah. 
equally grand, equally yes, beautiful, yes. and equally unreal. Yes, yes, <laughs> it is. You're right, but it's it, but isn't it good? I wish. When I die, I could go out like that. Exactly. I think you want to go out like the monster and I want to go out like Jack Bauer. Maybe that says it yeah, all. Yeah, yeah, I just want the terse but line it's still, and but the walk. It, yeah, whereas I want, want speech. some... Yeah. <laughs> but it's still the big TV send-off we both want. But this is a death of an identity. But that, that was never really there. Well, with Margaret Cavendish, who was, if we're talking about Englishness, my God, there's... Well, there's an interesting definition of Englishness. Well, yeah, no, but absolutely, there's an English woman right there. There's, there's, there's someone who is typically English in the opposite way to Mr. Stevens, right? She is the eccentric. She is the blue blood, mad as a box of frogs, who said, I want to be famous. And she would come down to London and people would wait around to try and have a look at her. And, and she wrote mad, utterly mad, bonkers stuff at the time. That, that when you say at the time, give a sense. She wrote a novel, it's about 100 pages long. It's called The Blazing World. She wrote that in 1666. Uh, and it is mad. It is bonkers. And it, it's about a woman who is captured on a boat and taken back with this guy who captures her, but they get caught in a storm, and it shifts the boat way, way off course, and they go up to the North Pole. And when they're at the North Pole, there's a portal to another world, and they go through that portal. And as they pass through that portal, everyone on the boat dies, apart from uh, this duchess that's been captured. And fantastic. The Blazing World is full of... It's full of weird half animals. There's a Spider Man, there's a Worm Man. So, this is Spider Man before Spider Man was the thing. I was going to say, this sounds like a, a perfect pitch for a new it's Netflix really, TV show. Yeah. I mean, why hasn't anyone taken the Blazing World in there? So, she's in this Blazing World, which is sort of a utopia. She becomes the Empress and she asks questions and, and gets answers to things that she hasn't had answers to before. And uh, then she realises, she finds out that her world is in trouble. And she's like, can we go back through the portal and save it? Essentially, they say yes. Um, and she goes through the portal and she's up on one of the winged men and she starts throwing down fireballs onto the people below that are attacking her then her ships her gold ships which are all covered in black so that they don't realize that it's gold emerge um, and all of her worm men emerge from the ground and all of her fish men emerge from the sea and just it's a slaughter it's this, this massive this is 1666 by a female author this is not a time when women were accepted when women were sorry when women authors were accepted or um, even women i'm sure Sounds out there for 2018. But also this comes back to identity as well, so I want to go over why I think that is. But let me just read you something, galvanise you, get you out there to go and read it. And of course all books heard on the podcast tonight and all books really in general can be found on at grapevine.com. Do click on a grape, you'll find a buy button and you'll be directed to purchase The Blazing World and other writings. Nicholas will soon show you why. What's the title of this one? The source of youth in the blazing world. She asked how it came that the imperial race appeared so young and yet was reported to have lived so long, some of them two, some three, and some four hundred years, and whether it was by nature or a special divine blessing, to which they answered, 
that there was a certain rock in the parts of that world which contained the golden sands, which rock was hollow within and did produce a gum that was a hundred years before it came to its full strength and perfection. This gum, said they, if it be held in a warm hand, will dissolve into an oil. I'm sorry, but this is just fantastic. <laughs> then it will purge by stool, then by urine, then by sweat, and lastly by bleeding at the nose and the emeroids. In the meanwhile, his diet is nothing else but eagle's eggs and hind's milk, and after the seer cloth is taken away, he will appear of the age of 20, both in shape and strength. <laughs> what a palaver! Just to get to that, but that's how you... That's why everyone in the blazing world looks 20. What an imaginative, crazy, mad, eccentric splurge. That's also what it is to be English. You know, um, it, it just just sort of not not stopping you know not not stopping to think even just just getting grabbing hold of the glory of the animal and going no i'm 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 going to do my own thing well can i bring in at this point another female writer this is joan didion ah oh, joan didion yeah about 400 years later 1960s now no 300 years later and this is one of the first things she wrote on the importance of self-respect from slouching towards bethlehem picked by Daisy. The dismal fact is that self-respect has nothing to do with the approval of others who are, after all, deceived easily enough. Has nothing to do with reputation, which as Root Butler told Scarlett O'Hara is something people with courage can do without. Like Jordan Baker, people with respect have the courage of their mistakes. They know the price of things. If they choose to commit adultery, they do not then go running in an access of bad conscience to receive absolution from the wronged parties, nor do they complain unduly of the unfairness, the undeserved embarrassment of being named co-respondent. In brief, people with self-respect exhibit a certain toughness, a kind of moral nerve. They display what was once called character, a quality which, although approved in the abstract, sometimes loses ground to other more instantly negotiable virtues. I mean, that moment there brings so much to mind the idea of dignity, which we started off tonight's pod with. And I just think it's so intriguing how Didion is, is talking about something quite similar here. But it's this idea of a kind of moral nerve, the display of what was once called character. So maybe, maybe as a way of ending here, we can bring ourselves back to the butler and also uh, take Cavendish with us. I feel partly what you're talking about when you praise Cavendish so rightly is is this intense self-respect that she has for herself. Margaret Cavendish is full of self-respect. Mary Shelley also. But then you have other writers like Coleridge, who really was somewhat devoid of it. He said he was a monster of lethargy and indolence. That's how he viewed himself. So it's not like he respects himself. It, it doesn't, to me, I don't think he liked himself very much. He, well, can we, can we go to someone who embodies these contradictions? Virginia Woolf. You have a grape, I believe, on Cavendish from her, which you maybe would, would like to read. Absolutely. So, yeah, Virginia Woolf was obviously very aware of female writers throughout history. Um, one of them that she sort of had a love-hate relationship, it seems, was Margaret Cavendish. And so in The Common Reader, she said, for now, Margaret could apply herself uninterruptedly to her writing. 
She could devise fashions for herself and her servants. She could scribble more and more furiously with fingers that became less and less able to form legible letters. She could even achieve the miracle of getting her plays acted in London and her philosophies humbly perused by men of learning. There they stand in the British Museum, volume after volume, swarming with a diffused, uneasy, contorted vitality. Order, continuity, the logical development of her argument are all unknown to her. No fears impede her. She has the irresponsibility of a child and the arrogance of a duchess. The wildest fantasies come to her, and she canters away on their backs. We seem to hear her as the thoughts boil and bubble, calling to John, who sat with a pen in his hand next door, to come quick, John. John, I conceive, come quick. And down it goes, whatever it may be, sense or nonsense. Some thought on women's education. Women live like bats or owls, labour like beasts and die like worms. The best bred women are those whose minds are civilist. Some speculation that had struck her, perhaps, walking the afternoon alone. Why? The hogs have the measles. Why, dogs that rejoice swing their tails. Or what the stars are made of. Or what this chrysalis is that her maid has brought her. And she keeps warm in a corner of her room. Wolf here is obviously, she thinks, Cavendish is great, but also a little bit all over the place. So I don't think she actually likes her writing that much. But I think she loves that she's doing it. Um, and, and there's this lovely line where she says, on and on from subject to subject she flies, never stopping to correct, quote, for there is more pleasure in making than in mending. Yeah. In fact, the ending of this is, is great because she says there is something noble and quixotic and high-spirited as well as crack-brained and bird-witted about her. Her simplicity is so open, her intelligence so active, her sympathy with fairies and animals so true and tender. She has the freakishness of an elf, the irresponsibility of some non-human creature, its heartlessness and its charm. There's such a damning and almost resentment from Wolf that Cavendish has managed to disobey the, the necessity for a mask, the necessity for oppression. Yeah, G giving up the glory of the animal uh, for a tailcoat and a set of ideas. You know, Wolf, on the other hand, is someone who didn't just write with abandon. She wrote as part of a narrative and part of a structure and was much more, it seems, restrained by yeah. the ideas around her. And how weird as well, because so much of her later work, definitely like The Waves, was about ostensibly lack of constraint, right? Uh, the Waves was the closest thing to that, but it was all very contrived. It's still very planned. But so aren't we saying that actually some restraint is necessary for brilliance? And, and yes. that's almost what Wolf is getting at, that the crack-brained and bird-witted unrestraint of the animal yeah. will always have its limitations. Yeah. And, and you do need some artifice, you do need some right. jacket within which you write. Because taking lessons I from think these this writers is... is always very difficult, isn't it? Because you're always so often left with, well, you need a bit of the animal and you need a bit of the straitjacket. I mean, how do we avoid that kind of banality? It's very hard, and Mr. Stevens fails to. Uh, whether or not he wanted to is not immediately clear. Um, but it's difficult to do. One extreme is Mr. Stevens, if you go the complete, so if you go the way of... And one's Cavendish, even. And one is Cavendish, yeah, yeah. Um, I like that, and I'd just like to finish with a final, very brief grape. Not from a book, but something that bounced around the internet and really does deserve the audience it stumbled upon. It's by a man called Jim Windolf, who I believe works for the uh, New York Times, written a few years ago. 
and I titled it The Spell Ishiguru Cast. Now the key idea to learn here, or know here, is that he, Jim, is writing in the style of an American radio host called Mike Francesca. I'm looking through this buried giant book. Reads excellent first couple pages. I don't get what people are complaining about, okay? You've got the same strange spell Ishiguru always casts. Like he's pulling you into a world. These characters in this one, looks like they're walking around in icy mist in the year 500. I don't care what year it is, but that's the year, 500. He can write about any year he wants to write about, as far as I'm concerned, okay? They're in the mist, and we're in the mist with them. And then he hits you with the sadness. And that's Ishiguro. These have been the Grapevine Sessions, take two. Thanks for listening.